Yo, yo, welcome, welcome to the Millennials Podcast. My name is Meeks. You can find me at the young underscore pilgrim on Instagram. We're going to be discussing everything that implicates young people today. So thanks for joining and we hope that you enjoy. Welcome to the Millennials Podcast. My name is Meeks and I'll be your host tonight. And in today's episode, I'm going to be reviewing my trip to London. I think it's going to be beneficial to some of the listeners here today, just about how to travel, how to think about the changing world and how to find your place in. So welcome to the Young Millennials Podcast. My name is Meeks again, and I encourage you to check out the previous episodes to get a sense of where we're going with topics that implicate and affect young adults. So today I just want to start off by talking about London. I went there for a conference, which was fantastic. And I really enjoyed listening and learning from experts in the licensing field. So one of the things I encourage people and young people to consider is finding a hobby or finding an additional interest that maybe you don't particularly know about, but you can learn about and really use that skill set over time for your own benefit. So branding and licensing is one of the fields that I've kind of entered in the last few months in regard to how to promote yourself and secure your trademarks, register your trademarks, and basically create a brand around what you're doing. And if you need more information about how to do this, please reach out to me at the young underscore pilgrim on Instagram, send me a DM and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. So just going into my experience in London. One of the first things I do want to talk about is the transport system there. So it's really expensive to even get a day pass. I paid about £15.70 for a day pass every day that I was there because there's little or no other options. You can't get a single pass every single time you want to go through from one station to another, which costs like £6. So it's really expensive and it doesn't work too well for the tourists. Maybe the local might be able to get an Oyster card, which is basically their pass card that you reload every time that you go in and out of the train. I witnessed most Londoners basically using their Google or Apple Pay seems to be most most efficient for them. So maybe maybe this is kind of like what the city is trying to encourage, basically payless or cashless society in terms of getting in and out of the train stations and going to different places. But I think it was a bit cumbersome. And one time I actually I paid for my daily pass and didn't get the ticket, which is the last remnant of actually feeding a ticket into the machine turnstile as you go in and out of train. Yeah, so I basically paid and nothing came came down the, the pike there at the, at the payment station. So I asked one of the conductors and he was writing me out a pass because I explained to him and I showed him evidence, but was unable to complete that pass because of time. He was actually the conductor that announced when the train was coming in and out. He seemed stressed out, but he was a nice guy. So the transport system in London is questionable. They have all these different trains, the central, the north, the south, southeastern. They have a whole array of different networks. I guess if you live there, it makes sense. Uh, just like no, in New York, it's com- complex for the average person. However, some of the trains are older than the others, which begs the question, why are these huge cities that are so advanced slow in updating their transport system? And the same is true about other major cities that I've visited. It's just never at the highest level. And, you know, London and, and England is a first world country. So you'd think that they'd be on that wave, like their next door neighbors in Germany, for example, with the bond, which is unbelievably fast. So this is something I've thought about, about cities like New York and cities like London. I mean, in New York, the Amtrak is a complete joke. It took me six hours one time to get from Hartford, Connecticut to Washington. Can you imagine? That took longer than me possibly taking the German train to go through half country, maybe. So it's incumbent on us as as voters, young people, to compel our leaders to make the changes that we want to see in the world. I think it was President Roosevelt who said that if you want to see change, you have to make do it. So he understood that politics is a grassroots system or a program, and we just kind of have to push push the system to change if you want to see change. You can't expect your elected officials to do stuff for you if you're not pushing for it. So that's that's my first impression getting on the trains in, in London. So some trains were cool, but others were tight and really stuffy, like you'd expect in any big city, but not to the extent that I uh, witnessed. So 
in that vein, staying with politics, I had the chance in my hotel room to also listen to the current prime minister, Rishi Sunak, and he was giving an address to the conservative party. It was basically a convention type of address equivalent to the ones that the Republicans may have leading up to the elections. And he was touting his history and how he's the first Indian to rise to the highest level of government and really praising the conservative values and platform, which incidentally is interesting that they actually were part of the group that passed marriage equality in the previous administrations. I think it was Cameron administration. So that was interesting. So they basically are pivoting themselves as being conservative in terms of the economics, but maybe liberal in their social view of politics, which is an interesting take. And now I understand having spoken to a few folks from London and England, there's essentially only two parties now, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. The Liberal Democrats have been relegated to the backfield because they had some kind of coalition that they tried to pass with one of the parties. I believe it was the Labour Party. And in doing so, they lost their voice. So England is basically kind of like the US in that they have two parties effectively, which like I've said in previous episodes is a huge problem because, you know, you just play people against each other and they have limited choice. And that's effectively what a monopoly looks like in politics. You have two parties. So they've monopolized the way things get done. If you don't like it, basically, you either have to pick the other party or you sit on the sidelines, which is what a few of these young people that I spoke to said that they did. So a couple of guys from Bristol, I was having a conversation with and they were basically so frustrated with how government is being run and they've basically decided to sit it out. They're, they're going to try and get involved at a local level, send the right elected official from their communities to office and hope that they as an individual elected official can actually pass legislation that help. And unfortunately, the, the states or the regions, I guess they don't call them states in England, in the north are getting the short end of the stick. So essentially, they believe that the conservatives and the folks in London look out for their own interests. For instance, they've been trying to build a train between Manchester and Liverpool, and they were hopeful that this project would create jobs and just give more life to that community up north. And it turns out the government, after a few years of basically kicking the can down the road, not really doing anything, basically came out and said, it's, it's really not going to happen. They just don't have the wherewithal, the will, and apparently the finances to get it done. Meanwhile, using eminent domain laws, they kicked out residents in some of these regions where this train was supposed to be built. And again, this is just exemplifies how politicians are more often than not just keeping their promises. And basically, they're just doing what they believe will get them votes, after which they just leave you hanging. And it was it was really sad to hear that story. Um, I actually watched a talk with the guy who's in charge of transportation in London, and he was basically trying to defend his record and his government's record to no avail. The folks on the TV, I guess the interviewers were, were going at really hard because it's, it's inexcusable to kick people out of their homes, their land, and at the same time, not compensate them the way they would have expected and finally not even do the job, the infrastructure job that was supposed to be done. So again, we're seeing parallels between the US and the UK and these Western democracies are just faltering and fail as we see them in, in the real sense, right? Beyond the political platitudes, the Western democracies, at least in the English speaking countries, are failing. So that's my overall take about the political situation in London. And I'll move on to the racial issue because I think this is a worthy topic to get into. Personally, when I checked into my hotel, I had to pay £10 because it was an early check-in. I was staying in the Greenwich neighborhood, which is supposed to be pretty decent. I was told, you know, you'd rather stay there. And even my Uber driver told me, had I requested an Uber because it was late going to East London, I think, or South London to places like Croydon, he would have basically not taken me there, uh, which is unfortunate because what happens to people of color that live in these marginalized communities in terms of not getting the support that they want from the public transport system, they can't afford to use the black cabs anymore, the London cabs. So Uber becomes like the default. And if the Uber drivers are not really feeling like driving them out to South London, Brixton and all these places, that's that's basically a form of racism, unfortunately. So racism is a real thing in London, not just from the structural way of looking at it, but on a more personal level, because like I was saying, when I was checking in my hotel, they put me in a room that 
that I was happy about initially, but had no stable internet connection. So the Wi-Fi was basically defunct in there. And, you know, I'm thinking they know this room probably doesn't have good Wi-Fi. Why would they stick me up in here? Even if I paid, you know, 10 pounds to get in there early. So it's subtle things like that. And so when I complained the next day, the manager was remorseful. I think she was of Southeast Asian descent and it seemed like she knew the problem and basically offered to give me free breakfast. And of course, I had to go to my conference. I didn't have time to do that. But it's subtle things like that. And by the way, she also moved me to a different room. So it's subtle things like that. That was kind of a harbinger of things to come in regard to race issues. Right. So I spoke to a lot of black people there and they often would come up to me and introduce themselves. And I just wasn't used to that. This, this is kind of weird in the sense that they were happy to see another person of color and they just come up and basically start having a conversation. And one of them was super kind. He helped me out because my battery was dying from my phone. My charge was dying and I needed to reload my charger. And he helped me basically use this app and I needed an English number to access this app so I could get phone charger from one of these uh, stands. So yeah, they're really cool people. And I was really happy to meet the black people there. And often they really didn't want anything. I mean, I had one person who basically was asking some help, but for the most part, they just wanted to connect on a human level from the motherland. You know, most of them are from the Caribbean, but we had such rich conversations about their experiences in London, which I think to be fair, might not be the worst, but I get the sense that they don't feel seen enough in the sense they don't have a serious voice in the government. You don't see too many politicians in the government, for example, and even the working class jobs, that's, that might be the place that they kind of thrive, but they don't necessarily have a voice or a stake in the sociopolitical movement or project in London. Of course, when I went to the National Portrait Gallery, I saw a host of black Londoners, you know, highlighted in, in some of the photographs there. And that was awesome to see. Like there was a guy who was in charge of the, the labor group back in the 70s and 80s. So he was a labor activist and he was been highlighted there as being an influential individual. And there was a range of other women of substance from, from England. So there's bits and pieces and they do kind of want to embed the African experience into the history, but it's subtle. And it seems like we're doing this because we have to. And we're basically trying to get away from this colonial picture that has been painted of England. I think it's basically a cover up story here. And until you see black people in influential spaces, then for the most part, you're basically going to see the same blackwashing. And I think one example is of a story I saw in the news of a girl who was stabbed to death. Unfortunately, she was about 17 by a so-called friend. I mean, these are like teenagers who are disagreeing over something silly and it ends in a fatality. But the crux of the story is that policeman was in the vicinity and actually witnessed undercover police person was in the vicinity and witnessed this assault and basically did not do anything to alleviate the situation or to stop it. And that was devastating. And there was a major outcry from black community there. And, you know, you have to wonder what about Black Lives Matter London in regard to their response or statements to such situations popping off very often from what I understand. There has to be a voice for these people and apparently there isn't one. And so BLM London needs to really step up. And they were actually at the conference when I attended the conference and, you know, they didn't have much in terms of a stand that evokes, you know, a serious group. It was basically a table with a couple of people, not much going on. So it doesn't seem like they're serious about, you know, using their brand to advance the movement of black lives, which is really unfortunate. I mean, we know of the scandals with the leadership there. You know, they claim that they're Marxist in ideology, but they've, you know, been witness to get money from some of the corporate donors like the Soros Foundation and so on. So that are questionable in terms of what their outcomes might be and how those outcomes might conflict with the welfare of black people in the urban communities. I'm not making a judgment call about some of these funders. I'm just saying that if you look into their history, there might be some kind of concern in regard to what they've done for the community they're supposed to be supporting. So that's my observation. London black issues are not at the best place if they ever were, at least from my opinion. But 
had great conversations with them and they're very affable and open, helpful. So they're sticking together, but they realize things are really not that great. So I do want to mention briefly that I met a Nigerian British person on the train and she's in the arts, basically a curator. And she was fantastic. She was equally as open and really proud to be a black person in England doing extraordinary work in the arts and curating system there. So it's great to hear that there's a lot of successful black Brits. Uh, there's one guy, young guy that I met who was basically working for one of the banks and they paid for his college education. So he's an apprentice for one of these banks. So I thought that was pretty cool. And he's a software engineer. So we do have moments where black people are really trying to break, break the mold there, but it's on an individual level. It's not organized like you'd expect. So I guess one of the things that I want to leave the listener here with when visiting places like London is to be open, to hear people out, to check out the, the major institutions out there to see what you can learn about them. For instance, the British History Museum was fantastic. I thought there were some really nice exhibits there. I think there was a Chinese exhibit with basically some artifacts that are on loan there. So you'll find some really cool stuff that highlights England's history, which I think is really important. For instance, I was able to learn about Queen Mary, who was not necessarily the most like queen in British history. But unfortunately, I guess she was the virgin queen. Um, that's that's what we heard in the in the tour. And, you know, King James IV, who basically was the one that wrote the, the Bible, the Holy Bible in King James, was interesting to learn about that family history and the dynamic between the Protestants and the Catholics there. Thomas More and all these guys who basically lost their lives. And we also saw some interesting artifacts about the gunpowder plot, which is in the 1600s, basically a group of Jesuits tried to bomb parliament because obviously they wanted to disrupt the whole system and turn it back into a Catholic stronghold. So you'll kind of see bits and pieces of this history, which I'd be curious to know how they kind of play in the modern sense, because my understanding from speaking to a teacher in London is that they basically don't teach this history anymore. Uh, you know, you'd be remiss to find a student that knows about the Magna Carta of 1215 and the major wars. They're basically doing the same thing that is happening in the US, where students don't even know what the US Constitution is about. So there's a sense that everything's kind of been watered down. And now we're just looking at life from a more social and individual kind of perspective. It's like, what can I get for myself? How can I succeed as an individual? Rather than looking at the communal, the communal benefits of being in a modern city like London and Bristol and Manchester and all these places. And ultimately, I think young people in London look up to the US kids, but they don't necessarily think that they're any better. You know, the US kids, that is because, you know, these London kids speak in really impressive English. They really know how to debate. They think through their thoughts and can really convince you on a point and are unafraid of doing so. I think that's an interesting kind of trait about Londoners. Whereas, you know, the Americans will say, well, maybe um, there's a chance, possibly we're a little bit more diplomatic. Londoners just say it as it is, which is impressive because ultimately you want to just get to the heart of matter. And I guess that's how their political system kind of churned jokers. And you have a new prime minister every couple of years, Boris Johnson's kicked out, like you didn't do anything. And for that reason, we're done with you. So there's there's a sense that that system is great because people don't tolerate nonsense. I think we in the US could learn a lot from, from them in that particular sense. Nonetheless, I think just to wrap this up again, the price of living in London is out of control. And I really don't know how young people will survive. One last illustration is this girl that I met on the train at Custom House where my conference was. It was basically, she didn't have enough money for us to catch up later to, um, because, you know, the trains are so expensive. And I think she was afraid to ask for help. So this is just my judging the whole situation in retrospect. I think that's what I witnessed. And I would have gladly helped her to pay her for her train ride to come hang out. But I don't think she was comfortable with sharing that with me. So, and this was one situation, but I saw a couple of situations where, you know, these guys pack lunch, they make sandwiches, they're now going out like Americans do. So you get the sense that there's some level of desperation in the youth and they're looking for a way 
way out and hoping leadership steps up to help them. But that help is not coming from leadership. They are, they're going to actually have to demand and like really strive to see the changes that they want there. So this is my experience. Again, I'm not make, making any judgment calls on people. This is just a personal take on what I saw in, in London. And I hope you guys go out there, visit the spot, check out some of the sites, make some friends. They're really great people, to be honest. And yeah, thanks for listening. I hope to hear more about your comments. And if you have any questions, you know where to leave it. That's the part. Yo, yo, welcome. Welcome to the Millennials Podcast. My name is Meeks. You can find me at the young underscore pilgrim on Instagram. We're going to be discussing everything that implicates young people today. So thanks for joining and we hope that you enjoy.